0: Hello, and welcome to Inside the Nudge Unit, the podcast that takes you right into the heart of the Behavioural Insights team. My name is Liz Costa. I'm the Managing Director of BIT in the UK, and I'll be your host today. This is the first episode of our two-part special on Behavioural Insights for Climate Change. And all eyes are on Glasgow as world leaders start to convene for COP26. There is a lot riding on this conference, It follows the IPCC's recent warning that if we're to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees and avoid climate catastrophe, we have to decarbonise our economies and we have to do it fast. Human behaviour will play a key role in this decarbonisation. In the UK, the Committee on Climate Change estimates that over 60% of future emissions reductions will need to involve some form of behaviour change. And that means we need to change how we heat and power our homes, how we travel, what we eat and what we buy. So in today's episode, we've brought together some of the world's leading behavioural scientists to tackle one big question. Can we nudge to net zero? On our panel, we have the Nobel Prize winning behavioural economist, Professor Richard Thaler, the newly appointed Professor of Behavioural Economics and Policy at Cambridge University, Lucia Rysk, and Professor David Halpin, BIT's CEO and Founder. Let's get started. Richard, in Nudge, the final edition, you talk about a perfect storm, being the confluence of behavioural factors that mean taking collective action to mitigate climate change is extremely challenging. Can you talk us through some of those behavioral factors that are holding us back?
1: Sure. Economists have long written about free riding and public goods problems. And, you know, in a traditional economic model, no one ever contributes anything to the public good because they get less out of it than they put in. Now, we we know that people are actually somewhat more cooperative than that, but Uh, That basic description of the problem applies, and in this particular case, it's exacerbated by the fact that we're grouped into countries and the countries are not cooperating. So the public goods problem occurs both at the individual level and at the governmental level and in places like the United States all kinds of layers of governmental levels. So uh, it's about as difficult a problem as we can possibly face. And the real dilemmas are that, well, among the dilemmas are the biggest changes, I believe, have to be taken at the level of businesses and organizations. And, you know, if you think about where we're, emitting the most carbon, it's in industrial production, transportation, and so forth and so on. Decisions individuals make are important, but they're, it's a minority of the problem. And so even if individuals are well-meaning, we need large corporations to also cooperate. And uh, it's a hard problem.
0: And on that point about uh, corporations, Mark Carney in his recent book Values calls climate change a tragedy of the horizon rather than a tragedy of the commons. And I think that elegantly encapsulates some of the present bias issues, particularly at the business level, but also at the individual level. Um, Can you comment on particularly those issues of of present bias and how they hamper action?
1: Sure. So, you know, Present bias, the way it's used by behavioral economists, refers to the fact that we overly wait now versus later. And so we splurge on a big dessert because it tastes good now and the repercussions come later and we don't save enough for retirement for similar reasons. Again, climate change makes this all the worse because of the problem of figuring out what discount rate to use. Discount rate is just the interest rate that governmental entities use to value utility now versus later. And even a one or 2% per year discount rate, which uh, is quite low, A hundred years from now doesn't really matter much. And there's lots of debate and has been for decades about what is the proper way to value benefits to future generations. I'm of the belief that saving a hundred people a hundred years from now should count the same as saving a hundred people now. That's not the dominant view. And I think Mark is exactly right that unless we're willing to count future benefits almost at par, then we can't even get started. And the only good news, I'm putting air quotes around the good news that you can't see, <laughs> uh, the only good news is all the catastrophes That we're seeing around the world, fires blazing, storms raging, Mm. and so forth, which are very much in the present and may kind of wake people up and say, okay, this isn't merely a problem for my children or grandchildren, actually, you know. The flooding in Germany is a good example of something that's completely unprecedented. New Orleans, we're used to flooding. We're seeing fires in Greece and the the fires on the west coast of the US have become common. When we get these shocks that are completely unprecedented, there's some, some hope that that will cause people to get the sense of urgency that we need to overcome this this problem that Mark Carney highlights.
0: I think that's right. And a really interesting question is is whether and how some of these behavioral factors may be evolving over time as we experience those impacts of climate change more acutely, as you've said. For some baffling reason, climate change has become a partisan issue, even though some
2: prominent Republicans, like the late John McCain, warned us about it many years ago. The fact is, that the overwhelming body of scientific opinion in America and the world believes that human activity is causing climate change in the world. And that is an irrefutable fact.
0: Lucia, to what extent do you think the increasing prevalence and particularly media coverage of things like extreme weather events might be shifting some of these behavioural factors?
2: I think when we look at illusionary psychology you know, way they, they, they have identified a set of what they call hardwired biases and one is indeed our need to have a sensory or mental experience. We are much better in, in reacting to and acting on problems when we can see or touch or smell or experience sometimes fear, right? And uh, like used to act. So... As with uh, short-sightedness and present bias, as Richard has just just explained, I really think that, I mean, again, until this past summer, climate change was a rather distant concept from most of the wealthy parts of the world and something that happened somewhere else or to someone else and not to us. And this has changed. And uh, Germany is my home country. So I must say that You know, this supposedly an an Olympus of engineers with an excellent infrastructure. If this country is not prepared to fight a flood, this is scary. And this Mm. is something that the media definitely picked up rightly. And everything that brings it closer to our senses, our experience, is basically good. On the other hand, there's also, it's always a fine line, like, I think in in uh, communication about climate change there is it's something like a sweet spot of you know too much fear too much anxiety because there's also climate anxiety for many people and that might also you know kind of people stop actually acting they they freeze or disapprove of political action so there's it, it's a little bit like in health like a doctor communicating to his or her Uh, NCD, non-communicable disease patients. You know, what is is the sweet spot of uh, explaining and making very clear this is the risk and this is where we are and this happens if you don't act? And on the other hand, show that there is hope, there are solutions if we act quickly and if we stick to what we have decided to do.
1: Latest report from the IPCC, which is the world's leading authority on climate change just came out. Here's a quick summary of what they found.
0: Experts are calling the world's climate change threat a code red for humanity. Code
1: red for humanity. Code
2: red for humanity. Code red for humanity. They
0: code red for humanity. Code red
1: for humanity.
0: Picking up on that, David, How do you think we should take these behavioural underpinnings into account when we're talking to people about climate change, particularly when governments are talking to people about climate change, and especially what they can do as individuals?
3: Liz, I think there's a paradox, which is really interesting around behaviour change and um, climate, which is that on the one hand, you've got bodies like the Climate Change Committee who've said, well, 62% of what we need to do is behavioural. And there's certainly in countries like the UK, really genuinely quite a lot of public appetite expressed through various kinds of surveys, saying people are prepared to do something, they want to do more. In fact, some of our work we found, you know, the vast, vast majority of people say they're prepared to do some extra step in the coming year or so. On the other hand, for policymakers, and to some extent, I think also a lot of behavioral scientists, they've, they've kind of very much picked up on what Richard was saying, which is that, you know, hyperbolic, discounting, et etc., cetera, etc., cetera, human beings were just not wired to take on climate change. And policymakers, I think, to some extent, have internalized that because they think, you know, give up trying to get people to switch the lights off. Waste of time. Let's just decarbonize the grid, which will sort of bypass any kind of behavioral demand. So you've got this interesting paradox where actually, in some ways, it looks like behaviors dial right up. On the other hand, a lot of policymakers have kind of actually become a bit skeptical about it. So one of the questions, what is the right way through? and What do you do with this? Well, some of it is about trying to understand, um, well, what is it that the public can do? Um, Some of it is to use Lucia's work and so on. It's just, well, just set defaults to make it really, really easy for the public. Almost they have to be effortful to not do the right thing. But otherwise, it's trying to direct public attention to things that would really actually make a difference. So a lot of that 62% that the CCC talks about is around technology adoption, for example. So to try and direct people away from things they have to do continually, like keep switching the lights on, into making ideally one-off changes or small changes which have disproportionate impacts, like getting the insulation done or try out that electric you know vehicle a bit earlier than you would have done. Go take it for a test drive and so on. Of course, there may also be some behaviors where actually a lot of it is also to do with preference, like around meat consumption and so on, which actually is quite hard to sidestep. But a lot can be done around tech adoption. So let's work out where we really actually need to ask um, the public's kind of precious attention. What can we direct them towards?
0: And also, how do we correct misperceptions about what actions actually have an an impact? There was a recent study run by Ipsos Mori across 30 countries where most people believe the most effective thing they can do is recycle as much as possible. And I guess that perception makes sense. It's been emphasised by governments at all levels for decades. It's something that's within individuals' control. But the impact of it is, is minuscule when you compare it to not having a car or even avoiding one long-distance flight. So how do you think we we can recalibrate people towards those most impactful actions?
3: Well, Liz, you got it spot on, of course. We found that also within BIT work, where you ask people, what do you think will make a difference. Actually, it's not very well correlated with things that if you go and talk to someone who's a climate change expert, will make a difference. So you get quite a lot of things which might be relatively effortful behavior, like recycling is perfectly worth doing. But it looks like it's quite a small thing relative to some other changes they might make, like going buying their electric vehicle, getting ready or insulating the roof. So correcting that is a pretty useful thing to get done. Another interesting thing on some of our more recent work, which is, I think, a genuine change in relation to the literature which is traditionally it was thought the way you get people to think about climate change was actually to get them to do something is you'd motivate through some some other route. It's healthier to do this thing. It's good for your economy or your income. But certainly in UK data, that does seem to have changed in our most recent work, where the public seem to be directly motivated by essentially a message which contains reference to saving the climate, or it's the right thing to do in terms of future generations. So that's an interesting development. Again, it suggests there's maybe more motivation. And if we can put those two pieces together, harness that motivation and direct people's attention towards things that would actually make a difference as opposed to things that make them feel a bit better, then actually you can feel much more optimistic about the future.
2: It can be very helpful to communicate what we in consumer research call motive alliances, are co-benefits of acting on climate change. To give you an example, uh, I lived in Copenhagen in the last 20 years, and uh, we have a bike strategy, a bike mayor, of course, one of the best cycling infrastructures worldwide. And people are regularly asked why they do use the bike so often. And, uh, you know, by far the most um, often cited reason is saving time and not having to see parking space, which has been almost <laughs> eradicated <laughs> intentionally through a sustainable urban mobility plan and repurposing space. So while Danes did buy more cars in the last 20 years uh, while I was living there, they're still back to work because it's so convenient. So Danes are often portrayed to be so you know, green and sustainable. It has a lot, there are a lot of other motives. Or um, in other countries, like in, in Germany, active mobility is praised for its health effects. You know the magic 7,000 steps per day or 30-minute bike ride. or neighborhood co-creating or sharing schemes have been linked to becoming part of a community, so fulfilling social needs.
0: You're absolutely right. And BIT recommended a policy uh, several years ago on green number plates for electric vehicles with some similar motivations underpinning that policy, that it's primarily about the social proof um, to other drivers that you are somebody who is environmentally conscious, and also perhaps the the perks that might come with that in terms of free parking or access to different lanes on the motorway. So I think in all of our policies, we should be bundling it with those co-benefits, as you say.
3: Yeah, let just one other thing to add on your question. Some of the things which are often run historically over long periods of time, look like they don't particularly cut through. Talking about polar bears doesn't make much difference to most people in most places, even though they're quite cute to watch on TV. Similarly, 1.5 degree doesn't mean very much in a way that actually floods in Germany does cut through. Then it goes into try and avoid fear-based. The fear certainly by itself doesn't do very much. Much better in general to emphasize efficacy. There's something that you can do. And then concretely, what do I do? So there are quite a lot of campaigns and activities which just don't get specific enough. Well, okay, you got my attention for a minute. What do you want me to do? Is it worry about the plastic straw in the bar? Or is it... You know, get some extra insulation in the, the roof or think about a heat pump.
0: And so moving on to what we actually want people to do and beyond communications, I want to discuss the role of behavioural science in effective climate change mitigation policies. And as you all know, some of the classic and the best known examples of nudging come from the environmental sphere. So, notably the OPAR experiments where giving people feedback about their own energy use in relation to their neighbors, particularly their most efficient neighbors, led to a sustained reduction in energy use of around one and a half to three and a half percent. And there's many other examples, particularly in the original edition of Nudge, on improving information about fuel efficiencies in cars, many other uh, classic examples. So I want us to start by talking about how we can build on and extend that early work to design nudges and encourage people towards more sustainable behaviors. Lucia, can you start by telling us about the experiments you've run in Germany um, to encourage households to switch to green energy? What it basically
2: showed is that, surprise, surprise, green energy defaults, meaning renewable energy defaults, are very effective, very powerful. They tend to stick and what is really interesting is that it didn't matter whether it was a household with higher or lower income. I think this is really a, a big point. Also, we also checked for environmental attitudes, and also those attitudes hardly mattered. So we can, you know, that just showed that uh, and on broad survey base, yeah, it seemed to work. And also from another survey study, we know that those type of interventions are also highly acceptable by definitely by uh, uh, the public in Germany and also in most other countries. There's a few countries that stick out, but overall, you can say that uh, uh, green energy defaults are widely accepted. You have to do it right. You have to do, you have to be transparent. You have to talk about it. People must seriously have the option to opt out, but uh, if you follow the uh, kind of good governance of nudging uh, rules, then you're fine as
0: a policymaker. And as you said, the the magnitude of the effect was was very impressive. So from 7.2% of people um, having green energy contracts in the opt-in condition, up to 69% in the default condition. how have German energy providers responded over time as these defaults have been tested and uh, and implemented?
2: Well, those who have been actually testing them have been kind of very much convinced from the very beginning. These were small green energy providers from cities like Heidelberg and Freiburg, kind of notably green uh, citizenship. There has been there has been not that much interest from the uh, the few big energy providers. There has been interest, kind of bilaterally, but there seem to be. Uh, this is at least their counter argument that there is regulation, competition regulation, that more or less forbids to set a specific default. I mean, of course, there is some limits uh, as regards regulation, but there's always ways to overcome and change regulation. Of course, I would have hoped uh, to have a larger impact, but sometimes things just need some more time or another government. Climate change is here having deadly real-world consequences. We need bold action now to stave off the worst
1: effects before it's too late. We have an opportunity right now, which is why we need sustained pressure to make it happen. And I get it. It's easy to be distracted. A lot's going on.
0: Richard, you've often spoken about the power of defaults and, and you know, the power of making it as easy as possible for people to change their behavior. Are there other areas that you think are ripe for a shift in default?
1: I think that technology is much of the answer. Uh, As everyone at BIT knows, having heard it from me a thousand times, (laughs) that uh, my mantra is make it easy, and there's nothing easier than automatic. Yes. And we've not been very good at automatic. So, for example, so-called smart thermostats, have often been about as smart as VHS recorders, (laughs) which I know the majority of my faculty colleagues were never able to master. And certainly the first generation of smart thermostats that I've experienced with, I found baffling. And it's frustrating how bad we are at this. You know, there are some things that are pretty easy, getting the switch in my office to automatically go off at a certain hour, that's easy. Getting the home energy system to automatically change what it's doing when there's an emergency or very hot weather or things like that. That's more difficult, but easily doable. We have cars that almost drive themselves. <laughs> um, we ought to be able to have homes that heat and cool themselves optimally under the circumstances, and we don't. My ideal world is one that makes it as easy to navigate the world as it is to navigate if I'm going to walk from Trafalgar Square to Covent Garden, which isn't very far, but is far enough to confuse the likes of me that is <laughs> very uh, geographically challenged. <laughs> so imagine if I can't do that on my own, I need help. But uh, we, all, we all need help with all kinds of things and calculating what's the best time to run the washing machine or to charge your electric car if you have one. We shouldn't be asking people to have to do that. That should all just happen automatically. Mm -hmm. And it's the one thing I'm optimistic about. We know we have the ability to do these things. I'm a huge hypocrite. I'll never do anything that's inconvenient to me. That's why there has to be systemic change, backed up by government action to make everyone make the right choices, not the easy ones. If it weren't for the government intervention, we'd still be eating lead paint chips dipped in fresh asbestos hummus and washing it down with cocaine colas.
0: We did an evaluation of smart thermostats several years ago and even those relatively early generation ones, you know, we did see a sustained five to six percent reduction in energy consumption in households. Now, that's nowhere near what we need to be hitting net zero targets. But as you said, it is it is a, a start and something we can build off. And I think there's, there's really sort of a dual behavioral challenge there. One is the take up of this technology and the other is Optimizing the technology to go with the grain of human behavior to the greatest extent possible and make it as easy as possible for people to use.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think we have to remember what what we're up against. And I think that a lot of what we're up against is inertia, status quo bias, whatever you want to call it. New Orleans has had its most recent hurricane. And they will rebuild. It's a place that is is quite charming, but shouldn't exist in its current location. But it will. And many floodplains, in a world in which sea levels are rising, people should be thinking about moving. I think one interesting question to ask is whether maybe this is my, moment of seeing silver linings, but I'm hopeful that the pandemic will have changed some habits. For example, how willing we are to get on an airplane. There was certainly a lot of travel that was just completely stupid. So somebody flying across the country or around the world to meet with an important client because that's what the client expects i certainly hope we we take this opportunity to stop that certainly there are opportunities for changes in habits and i think people are going to be m- much more willing to consider having a meeting via zoom mm-hmm. rather than getting on airplanes. And I think the first couple times you go back to the airport and you remember how dreadful the experience is, it can remind you that fewer trips may have an upside.
3: In case the Senator from Wyoming has missed it, Oregon is burning, California is burning, Greece is burning. There is a drought hitting virtually every country on Earth. Newsflash. Climate change is real. And the United States and other countries have got to address it.
0: David, can you talk a bit about these moments of disruption that COVID has created and, and how we might harness them to change what we eat, how we travel how
3: we invest our money. Sure. So as Richard talks about, make it easy is, you know, one fundamental principle. Another one is you look for moments, particularly around habits, where they've been disrupted. Famous UK example is a two-day strike on the underground, meant that one in 20 people who've been commuting for years didn't go back. They found a new route. The whole world's had its behaviors and habits disrupted. And it may be, like Richard is saying, we'll decide not to get back on a plane for that extra time, at least some kind of margin. Of course, it could end up in very different places and it can slide back pretty fast. So it's interesting as to whether we can kind of catalyze some of those changes around travel would be a very obvious example, but it could go broader than that. So, but in general, yes, of course, you disrupt the behavior. It gives you a moment, an opportunity to reset it in a different sort of place. We tend to think about behavior change and uh, climate, actually, with using a sort of upstream, downstream model and maybe just take a second to explain that. So, you know, one thing you do, you're stuck in the stream, you're trying to get across it or whatever, and you can say to people, just swim harder. I mean, that's what a lot of conventional behavior change would be. Like, you know, just cycle, walk, don't get in your car. It could be effortful in that way. Now, it might have been disrupted and made easier in that way, but otherwise what you try and do is you look for, um, make it easier in some other way. So like a separate, you know, eddy current where the current doesn't flow so hard and you can make a change. Defaults can sometimes do that for you. They can give you a default, which is much easier. Or indeed you can just make it a little bit more appealing. To go back to one of Richard's most and Cass's most famous examples about the chips versus the salad, and you know, a modern variant on that, or contemporary one, would be um, you know, go for the vegetarian option. Um, we know you can make it more attractive, call it field grown, twice as likely people to choose it than if you call it vegetarian. But also in a canteen, if you go from one in four of the options is vegetarian to, to two in four, you get a seventy percent increase in the number of people who shift it, even without having a hard to fall know, making it more appealing. But ultimately what we're trying to do is also just change the current, which would be one of the really big things. So that's that's really goes to what Richard's talking about in terms of making it easy. Can we change the incentives actually on many of the market players so that they are working to make it easier? If we can bring that together around this timely moment, then that would really amount to something quite dramatic. And it's possible it's it's true. It's possible that we definitely see some changes in elite behaviour amongst corporates who feel under pressure to actually take seriously some of the challenges around COP.
0: Really what you're talking about is moving beyond individual behaviors towards influencing the system which is shaping our actions. And Richard as you said at the outset, you know, some of the biggest changes and the biggest impact to be had is in shifting the behavior of businesses and organizations. Coming back to to Mark Carney's comment about the tragedy of the horizon. You know, when we're talking about shifting the behavior of market players, you know, a lot of the impacts of climate change are beyond the business cycle, beyond the political cycle. Um, how do you think we can align those incentives so that it is in the interests of businesses and organizations to be making these changes and making it easy for consumers?
1: Like every economist in the world, as far as I know, I think that the only hope for climate change is to start by getting the prices right. So if polluting is free, people will pollute more. That, that part of economics is quite correct. All you have to do is watch people at an all-you-can-eat or worse, all-you-can-drink affair, and you see excess. And polluting is free right now. So I think we need to set prices on carbon. Sweden has shown that that's eminently doable. And they did it the right way. They started with, I don't remember what the numbers were, but something like $20 a ton. And they've ramped it up gradually, a pay more tomorrow kind of plan. Uh, I think they're over $120 a ton. And what has happened? Well, emissions have gone way down and the Swedish economy is just fine. Uh, The sort of catastrophes that some people predict if we had carbon taxes are not right. Now, so far during this conversation, I've been the cheery optimist. On this front, I must say that It makes me very depressed because, in a world where we are increasingly polarized, and certainly in the United States, it's not possible to get Democrats and Republicans to agree on whether the sky is blue. There is this weird and horrible coalition between the right, who are against anything that has the word tax. And the Greens, who, for reasons I don't fully understand, oppose carbon taxes and think, no, no, we can't do that. We need regulations. I think that's extremely unhelpful. And I think that the confusion is that, yes, a small carbon tax won't get us there, but That's not a reason to oppose carbon taxes, that's a reason to oppose small carbon taxes. Let me just mention one initiative that my colleague at the University of Chicago, Michael Greenstone is working on, something he calls the the climate vault. And uh, I think it's quite clever. It's set up to allow organizations, say businesses or universities, to buy permits in a cap and trade market as a way of offsetting their emissions. So, and if you go and buy those permits in say the California market, well, you're just taking that, that's reducing emissions because that's reducing the number of permits that are out there and those are the only way people can pollute. You need those markets to be working for this system to work. But I think the only way we're going to really solve this problem is with a global carbon tax or cap and trade system. And that that's, like many things, easier to say than to do. <laughs> and we have to... You know, rich countries and poor countries have legitimate arguments. Let's figure out some way that both sides will find to be moderately unfair, but move on. And let's agree to ramp up the prices over the next couple decades, the, Mm. the way Sweden has done. Sure, it would be better to do it right away today, but that's not going to happen. But I think that must be the first step. And then the big players are going to think about, you know, let's start with utilities. If it's much more expensive for them to have a dirty way of generating electricity, than a clean way, then they're suddenly going to get more interested in clean energy sources. And and they will become economically viable if the prices are right.
0: I mean, I I think that Greenstone's climate vault proposal is very interesting. And, you know, I'm, I'm generally an optimistic person, but I have to say, Richard, I share some of your pessimism on this. I think that the question is, you know, if you did have a carbon price that that echoed "Save More Tomorrow" um, and ratcheted up in that way that you describe. You know, do you think we have reason to trust that industry would adapt to those commitments? Uh, you know, if that's where the carbon tax was levied, or do you think it would give them, perhaps this is a very cynical view, time to to avoid them?
1: I mean, it's true that managers in large companies often have short horizons and are improperly rewarded for short-term thinking. But I think if you know that the price of carbon is going to triple over the next decade, then every large organization is going to be thinking about how to adapt because it takes time.
0: Let's talk about the finance system, which in which all of this is is operating. And coming back to David's comments about moving upstream and influencing the system in which we're making decisions, David, can you talk more about some of the work that BIT's been doing on green pensions and how we might uh, decarbonise investments through the massive amount of money that flows through the pension system in the UK and, and globally?
3: So. You'll gather we're trying to, one of the things we think we can do to reinforce the shifts is to direct people's attention towards ideally relatively small changes that they can make but are are sticky. So one of the biggest one is, hey, what happens to your pension? So in the UK alone, people's private pensions are probably worth about $4 trillion. And we aren't such a big country. That's a lot of money. And if people start sticking their nose into that and saying, hey, could you make that a bit more? You know, invested in green things. That's a very, very big deal. And so what can that do? So we tested putting together some of these elements. So for example, uh, Lucius talked about the use of defaults are very, very powerful. We've seen them in other areas. So we ran a trial, members of simulation, but with pensions, we try different kinds of ways of informing people, a sort of star rating about some of the you know, between sort of three choices. But we also vary the default. What do you start with? You start with a green thing and you might opt out, or do you start with something which is not green? And hey, presto, it more than doubles the number of people who who end up green if they start with green in the default option. And this is just a simulation. If you look at at this, he's working in the real world context when people aren't being so attentive to it, probably the effects would be very much larger. But why it's really neat is you're knocking down a series of dominoes because then, in principle, you're starting to move quite large market flows and capital values towards greener investments. Indeed, it might make even Richard a bit more optimistic about the prospects of a carbon tax because the market will start to move in anticipation of it and it makes it less painful to make the switch because you've got you know some of those left behind. So we are relatively upbeat about this. And one of the things that governments and regulators can do is they can put the mechanisms in place to make those relatively easy choices. And to go back to, you mentioned the O-Power trial, very, very famous, you know, 50 million odd people have gone through that sort of prompt. You know, your neighbors are using less energy than you and it gives you a few percent. But there's been very detailed studies to work out to what extent which bits of it stick when you switch off that feedback. And what it shows is roughly half of it is very sticky. And that's because people have made some kind of structural change. And the question is, if that's doing the heavy lifting, can you focus the attention on that? And the pension switch would be an example of it. We don't ask people to keep doing something again and again and again, but you might precipitate a choice, particularly if you back it up with a default, which is, hey, do you want to have a green pension or not? And we think a lot of people will go for the green option. But even if relatively modest percentages start to shift across, actually the effects are very, very large when you're talking about $4 trillion. Just reducing emissions is not enough. It's not enough. enough.
0: that together with with Lucia, what you were talking about in terms of green energy defaults, if I remember correctly, your study there found that the switch in default led to a 20 percentage point increase in green electricity consumption overall. And obviously to support that magnitude of change, at least in the short term, you need an energy grid that can support that shift to renewable energy production, just as in green pensions. If we see that magnitude of shift, we're going to need to see, you know, good quality um, ESG investments coming through the pipeline to be able to support that shift in demand. In both of these cases, and Lucia, first with you, for countries without that type of renewable energy energy, generation capacity you know what would you recommend on the path to that green energy default in order to start shifting the market towards that investment
2: right i mean energy the energy markets are really very very different and we should probably start with discussing what is green or what is what is renewable yes. energy right i mean if you look at uh, france or germany i mean france has most of its the largest percentage is, is nuclear and uh, Germany has edited out nuclear energy or is about to uh, close down the latest uh, nuclear power plants next year, actually. The biggest challenge is actually building it. I mean, looking at, I've been involved in the German energy transition, which is now, has been decided on about 10 years ago. And within those 10 years, many things have changed. But one thing that has been extremely difficult and is really very much behind is building the infrastructure. I mean, mm-hmm. um, the 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 big and north south infrastructure. And there's a lot of not in my backyard thinking. And people are actually very much against it. That's also, by the way, there's a behavioral factor, right? Because there's the option to involve people, communities, um, cities, and make them part of partly owners of the grids. And that seems to help and um, increase acceptance
0: when we're thinking about this gradual shift where you have a feedback loop between consumer demand and, you know, the shifting investment practices of whether it's pension funds or energy uh, generators, electricity generators, where that capacity is still in an emergent stage, what type of behavioral interventions do you think we can build on the pathway to a true default? I mean, I do think that
2: also because time's running out, I think that Pretty bold actions are actually needed. I don't believe that we have time for the gradual piecemeal kind of supply and demand uh, small changes move. I think uh, there was this recent study that actually changed in order to reach the the Paris goals. We have to simply leave fossil resources where they are. Like, you know, they say ditch 90 percent of the world's coal and 60 percent of all the oil and gas. Um, at the same time, support innovation as much as possible to allow and support decarbonization and move uh, innovation in Mm. in all the different industries. That goes to the car industry, that goes to the energy industry, uh, that goes to manufacturing. I do think it's really time to uh, try and really go for the gold action. And this is what, I mean, that's my understanding what, such a multilateral conference like the COP can actually do because each individual country and for each political party could be easily suicide. I mean, political suicide to, uh, you know, to go beyond what seems to be acceptable.
1: It's in the interests of the left to have destructive hurricanes, because then they can blame it on climate change. The ice caps were going to melt. They were going to be gone by now, but now they're setting records, okay?
2: A hearing on Capitol Hill on global warming was canceled because of snow in Washington, D.C. You can't make this stuff up.
1: It's a snowball, and that's just from outside here.
3: So it's very, very cold out.
1: I found it ironic the president was wearing a trench coat. It was so
3: cold that he's talking about global warming. It's not global warming. It's God's judgment coming to this country. Environmentalism has become a radical movement, something we call the Green Dragon.
0: Let's move on to the COP, and I'm going to ask you all for some advice for the the world leaders going to COP26 in Glasgow in about a month's time in October, November this year. Those world leaders are going to be under enormous scrutiny from the world around you know whether they are accelerating change to the extent needed to meet the Paris agreement. What would each of you advise them in terms of what they should prioritize from a behavioral perspective?
2: I think decoupling of production and welfare from resource and edge use is the most important thing and there is there's bigger steps and there's smaller behavioral steps. That should be taken decarbonization of all industries, not just transport and manufacturing. Maybe try to expand some of those. I mean, in Europe, we do have a such a trading system uh, that has been pretty lousy, but it has now been, you know, it's much better these days with much higher uh, prices. And then also decide to leave fossil resources where they are, support innovation. Infrastructure, charging infrastructure will be a a big topic for the car industry, set standards. And I'm also a big fan of the global corporate minimum tax that is now in place, but we'll see which new escape doors businesses will find. These are some uh, of the big issues that should be at least move ahead. I mean, these are, that's not, none of this is new. This has been on the table since, at least since Paris, if not much longer. And I think uh, from the behavioral side, it's also an important message to tell them that don't underestimate the citizens of your country. I, I mean, David just uh, cited this one study of you know, there's rather high percentages these days of citizens who are willing to do changes. If they do provide viable and global and practical and attractive alternatives to many consumption options, they will go for it. So don't
0: underestimate your citizenship. David, what would you recommend to the COP leaders, particularly around how they might build a consensus?
3: Well, as Lucy is saying, one really encouraging detail is across what 196 countries, um, you now see a majority um, pretty much across the piece of population saying, their governments should get on and implement the Paris Accord. Do they really understand it all? Who knows? But, you know, um, in the UK, actually, that's up to now 92%. So there's quite a lot of public support. The concern amongst many policymakers is, Why well, did people really mean, do they really mean that when it comes to, you know, do we really want to do Richard Taylor's, you know, carbon tax? But there may be more appetite than people think. A lot of it is about COP, of course, is getting countries to jump together so that you don't experience the penalty. There are some areas and systems where that's really important, like agriculture and food. But one area I think looms particularly large for both technical and also public kind of behavior reasons is to do with what we sometimes call deshrouding or revealing to people what the hell's going on. Can you tell whether this product is actually greener? Can you tell if this company is greener and so on? Even among sponsors of COP itself, can you really tell in those sectors? So the truthful answer is in many areas, in fact most areas, you can't. In fact, one of the arguments why carbon tax is often said as a way forward is because it's so complicated. Let's just try and tax it and get the price right and it'll flow through. But deshrouding, as we often call it, you know, revealing those attributes, if there is at least some interest in consumers, that's a pretty powerful thing to do. Supermarkets in the country like the UK or Australia or many other countries, there's not very many of them, and consumers aren't very loyal. So they're competing primarily on price. If you can actually see at a glance which is the greenest supermarket to walk into. So you don't have to think too hard, but its chosen product which generally are greener and so on. That's a relatively easy one-off choice you can make. And you don't need to move very many of those consumers and actually has changed the competitive pressure in that market. So I think our view is this is one of the biggest levers that hasn't really been used. And through COP, both within and between countries, you could try and move that forward to try and say, well, actually... Can we help consumers and businesses tell the difference between what is green and what's not, and then really amplify it?
1: I'd like to reinforce a point that Lucia made about linking this to sort of a universal corporate income tax of some sort. We've seen what happens if there are tax havens, because companies can very easily shift profits to wherever it's the cheapest to harvest them. And we're going to have to fix that problem. And it's closely related to the emissions problem. So if it's going to be easy to shift the emissions to the places where it's cheapest to emit, then that's going to cause a lot of harm because the atmosphere doesn't care where it came from. The other point I will make, and this is something that we stress in the new version of Nudge, Bill Nordhaus's idea of so-called climate clubs, though both Cass and I are not sure that that's the best name for them, but the Paris Accord is is sort of a climate club. And the research by Ernst Fair and Simone Gachter shows that if you give people the opportunity to punish, then there's you get more cooperation in so-called public goods games. So if, if somebody's free-riding, people will selflessly go out of their way to punish the bad actors. And I think that is going to have to be an essential part of Paris accord 2 countries will be under great pressure to go along but they what are they go along with if it's some goal for 2050 then they that's not going to help we need goals for 2022 and 2023 and we need punish we need the ability to punish people who aren't making progress every step of the way. We know what we have to do. We all know what we have to do. And it's it's a combination of standard economics, standard regulations, and nudging. And the relative weight we put on those is flexible and should should depend on the thing that we're trying to fix. But if we take those three components and add technology, then we have all the ingredients we need to solve the
0: problem. But Richard, if if I can ask you for a final reflection, you know, almost a decade passed between you writing the initial chapter, Saving the Planet, which is quite optimistically titled in the original version of Nudge. Um, almost a decade passed between that and, you know, updating it for the revised edition. What was your mood rewriting that chapter? Did you feel that we achieve some of the ambitions set out in the original version, or do you think we still have a long way to go?
1: I think the way the chapter reads is panic. I think no one can look back at the 12 or 13 years since we wrote the first version of Nudge and think that we've made enough progress on climate change. I think what we need at this upcoming meeting is a strong sense of panic. And I wish that they would have that conference near wherever the biggest forest fire is taking place.
3: Climate change could make it tougher for you to get a good cup of coffee. Changes in
0: temperature along with rainfall and the length of seasons would change the quality and taste
3: of beans, making for a lower quality cup
0: the largest change
2: that wine drinkers are likely to see is higher alcohol contents in the finished product, and there is much discussion on if this is a good or a bad change. Scientists
1: say climate change could severely impact the world supply of beer. No!
0: Can I ask you all for any, any final reflections, um, advice to the COP members or advice to, you know, any of our listeners and audience who are thinking about how they can change their own behaviour to contribute to climate change mitigation?
2: Right. To your first, first question, I think it's pretty clear that we cannot nudge to zero as the title of this podcast asked, but we can do three things. We can include those nudges that have proved to be highly effective, where the level of evidence is pretty good that are easy to implement, highly acceptable in overall policy toolbox. And we talked about defaults, for instance, and a few others. Second, uh, it's also important to to show how we can make classical policy approaches more effective, more acceptable. Factoring in the human factor, so a behaviorally informed carbon tax, Uh, That Richard also sketched with a climate bonus system for low income households. This is something we discuss right now in Germany. It's probably more useful than one that is not behaviorally informed. So these type of combinations, uh, and the knowledge we have from the different, also from the different economic approaches are very, very useful, I think. And this is something we can bring to the table as behavioral scientists. And I also think that as a, behavioral economists or behavioral scientists, we should not allow the um, some countries, some governments to use behavioral interventions or misuse them as an easy way out to crowd out and not address the big structural problems like poverty, infrastructure, equity. And these are three things that I think behavioral economists, behavioral scientists could bring to the table at COP.
3: I think there are some grounds for optimism. So the technology genuinely has moved sufficiently that the kind of the, the cost gaps are much, much smaller. We see that on wind, for example, where the auctions are coming in basically cheaper than carbon-based these days. And it's like, you know, let's get behind it. There's also, of course, very big technical issues. So, you know, when the wind stops blowing, what do you do? But then can you use some creativity and say, well, look, we need to generate some energy in some pretty poor bits of the world as it happens often and connect them up in our grid. Well, you know, that's actually, that's a sort of opportunity, a good thing to be done in there. And behavioral science, I think, has moved a long way as well with a bit of nuance, where we often think of it as a sort of WD-40. You can spray into the regulation or even the design of taxes to make it kind of less painful. And Lucy has given very clear examples of that. you put that together, it feels much more tractable. I do think whether one of the issues might be is that there's a sort of lag amongst a number of policymakers who think this is still incredibly difficult politically technically behaviorally and they haven't quite gotten on by actually those different levels of difficulty have kind of dialed down i think on several fronts i don't want to minimize in any way but it feels it is much more tractable on all those fronts than it was a decade ago and now it's like well look let's just do it i mean for god's sake i've got kids and i quite like them to have a future in the world and most of us have you know we look around us and think let's get this done so Let's try. It. And also, I think there's enough room to bring together some of the experiments that are out there as well to try and capitalize as fast as we can those pathways and see, well, actually, this variation works better than another. So I still, maybe naively, I actually feel quite optimistic if we, if we put those elements together. Um, and we shouldn't be locked in the fact because it was so difficult in the last 10 years doesn't mean it should be so difficult in the next 10
1: well, I wish I could share David's optimism. I'd offer a wager, but I'm not sure <laughs> that either of us would be around to collect. Uh, so my chances of being around to collect are, are not all that high. The one thing I would, I think maybe we haven't talked about as much as we might have, though it's it's we've been on the periphery of it, is I think we can accomplish a lot through disclosures, And making it known how much various companies and organizations and countries are emitting can help. People will will react to that. I mean, and it goes along with all the other things that we've been talking about. But to repeat, I think we have to act like we're way behind in whatever game it is we're playing and take the appropriate steps, whatever those are. And yes, this is a podcast about nudging and we, sh- we should nudge wherever we can, but we have to face it that nudging people into green energy is only as useful as there is green energy to supply.
0: Well, thank you all very much for a very stimulating discussion. I think, as you can see, there's varying levels of optimism amongst us. But I think what is clear from this discussion is that climate change is a challenge with clear behavioural underpinnings, and that, you know, what we all agree on is that there is a clear role for behavioural science both in changing individual behaviour, but also changing the behaviour of other actors in the system, particularly corporations and industry, and that if we can get all of that pointing in the right direction, hopefully even Richard has cause for some greater optimism. That's it for the first episode of our special series on behavioural insights for climate change. We've recorded this to mark the COP26 climate conference hosted by the UK in Glasgow. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe, give us a rating or tell your friends. The second episode will look at the big three of climate behaviours, transport, food and energy, and it will be available soon. In the meantime, if you want to find out more about the Behavioural Insights team and what we've been up to, you can visit our website at www.bi.team or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium and YouTube. If you want to get in touch about running behaviour change projects in your own organisation, you can send us an email at info at bi.team. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening and we hope you return for more Inside
3: the Nudge Unit podcast soon.